Hello, and welcome to the Czar and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me as usual. How are you doing, Darcy? Hey, hey. <laughs> I'm doing all right. I just got back from brunch with some friends. It was a good time. Had a couple of mimosas. Feeling pretty good. Right on, with the right yeah. on. I mean, yeah. you know you're ready to record after mimosas. Basically, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I got some interesting stuff for the podcast today. I've got... A little bit of uh, new stuff. I guess the Elizabeth Holmes trial is going full-fledged speed at the oh, moment. Oh, boy. Lots of stuff okay. going on in that one. But I saw this article that I thought was interesting. And it's not surprising to me, but I thought it was interesting. And it's Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes has a fandom of homies that hail her as a girl boss despite the fraud charges. <sighs> so do you think this is something that she created on her own? Or this no. legitimately popped up like outside of her interests. I think this is legitimately just something that popped up because there's always those people that like write people in prison and get attached to people in prison, like high profile criminals. They always get like groupies. That weird like psychological Yeah, like normally you see it with like serial killers, but I guess it's not, I guess it's a thing for like white collar crime too now. I don't know. I don't know. It's very interesting. But three blonde women dressed in black waited outside a courtroom to catch a glimpse of their hero as she walked into court. They were captured in a photo tweeted by one of the journalists covering the story as she reported on the trial of Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes. Um, Holmes, who dropped out of Stanford at 19 to start her own blood testing business, Theranos, has been charged with massive fraud, as we discussed in an earlier episode. Um, the company was once valued at $9 billion, and she was accused of selling the services to create this blood testing despite known shortcomings and inaccuracies in the technology. She became infamous after journalist John Carreru's investigation. um, Well, he wrote an investigative book called Bad Blood, and there were several podcasts that documented the downfall of this particular company, but she faces up to 20 years in prison at the moment. But despite these charges, fans are idolizing her, I guess. Um, They have a TikTok hashtag Elizabeth Holmes. This received 13 million views on the platform, showing people copying her characteristics, her wide-eyed expression, her low voice, her black turtlenecks, which I guess were copied from Steve Jobs. Right. So they're not really hers, so copying her, copying Steve Jobs. Um, and on Facebook, there's an unofficial Elizabeth Holmes page that has like 3,000 fans, and people comment Seriously. messages of support. Um, and there's some vague status updates on there as well. There are other unverified accounts that have comments from fans saying, you go girl, we believe in you, you're brilliant. And people are posting messages of congratulations under status updates. Um, (laughs) and some people are suggesting she's going to be cleared of all the charges. Here's the thing. Wait, I'm not done. Let me finish the article. Then, then we can, (laughs) there's more. Okay. Oh boy. Okay. She has this really complex fandom, I guess. And there's, I guess the lines are kind of blurred between irony and and genuine reverence, which is not surprising to me, right? Yeah. Um, And then they're even arguing supporting her as a feminist issue. So she has this cult following that labels her as a girl boss, and the term girl boss was kind of populated in the 2010s to refer to women who achieved an aspirational level of professional success, which is super Mm -hmm. cool. Um, And then I think the Me Too movement has pushed that forward as something that's really a thing. But since the concept was called out for a perceived lack of inclusivity and focus on wealth, it has begun to pop up satirically online with Elizabeth Holmes Sands dubbed homies by some observers using it frequently. 
<clears throat> there's an Instagram account called Elizabeth Holmes Updates, which asks in the bio, are you on the right side of her story? And it posts updates about Holmes and the court case. And on this last week, they showed photos of Holmes lookalikes outside the courthouse waiting for her in solidarity. And it encouraged people in this with in solidarity with Elizabeth Holmes, put on your best black turtleneck. United we slay, united we fall. Um, the owner of this account, her name is Anuncia Roberts, and she told people she started the account as a joke for her own entertainment after following the Holmes trial for a while and the whole scenario with her. At the core of the situation is almost funny, she said. I don't know how people <laughs> fell for her shtick. Uh, TikTokers say um, one particular account has over 10,000 followers and has posted several videos about her. And this other woman's Instagram bio states she's an Elizabeth Holmes stan, right. not fan, like S-T-A-N. And last June, she went through a phase of posting memes of Holmes, tagging her as a girl boss as a joke, but it turned into more than that. By August, she was selling Elizabeth Holmes as my girl boss t-shirts on Etsy for about 22 bucks a piece. Right. And making money off of it. And then this person told a particular Los Angeles magazine that having a fraudulent healthcare company with an awful culture and simultaneously being named Glamour's Woman of the Year is deeply funny. Right. Um, I guess this particular store that was selling the t-shirts is not active anymore, but there are plenty more that have popped up with mugs, t-shirts, like the whole deal. Um, And then they're saying that these homies, quote unquote, may be drawn to the subversive nature of idolizing a female villain. But not all of the idolatry is a jest. According to TikTokers, um, one in particular, Serena Sahidi, who has about 424,000 followers, frequently posts about Holmes, a woman finding fanfare as a villain is admirable, either ironically or unironically, and this person told insiders that people love that there's a woman at the center of it all. I guess there's empowerment in the idea of having a female villain because there's typically something that's like very, it's typically something that's very taboo. And there's a kind of progressive nature about the idea that a woman in the news isn't playing by anyone's rules and that's what they're saying about her that she's like a rule breaker and she doesn't care about anyone's rules but her own male villain figures in popular culture have been idolized numerous times like pharma boy martin what's this how does he have his name and um he's the one that infamously raised the price of hiv and cancer drugs online and got that whole fan base and he was the villain and yeah exactly but it's that kind of a culture right who he gets a fan base because he's a weird crazy jerk right and she's getting one too but there's also a cult following for tiktoker cameron heron after he was sentenced to 24 years in prison for vehicular homicide um then you've got film characters like the wolf of wall street and american psycho Right, that are idolized and yeah. have become these fan favorites now, even though they're they have done awful things. But um, being a Holmes fan may be a sign of an agreeable personality. What? They say so. These psychologists are looking at this. These are people that specialize in personality disorders and psychopathy, and they're looking at this phenomena. Um, and it's saying that it's celebrating these people who are widely regarded as having behaved immorally. Um, and he's telling people that. Individuals who develop attachments to infamous public figures generally score higher in tests of agreeableness. So I guess these people that idolize, you know, serial killers and all that have yeah. higher agreeableness, which not really clear on that, but it's being kind, considerate, and inclusive when dealing with other hmm. people. 
So relatively agreeable people tend to be more likely to want to form these parasocial relationships. They're people who want to get along with others and who see themselves smoothing social interactions. People may see themselves in homes, seeing their own mistakes and hardships in homes which are playing out in public. Homies may think if someone so competent as Elizabeth Holmes can be taken advantage of so badly, that might help explain some of the problems that I've had with people taking advantage of me as well. The women who dress up as her may perceive themselves as helping her in some way. This could be, this could be because they believe they're picking up subtle signs that she's a good person <laughs> deep down. That's it. But uh, <laughs> it's interesting, though, right? I mean, there's two sides of it, right? There's the people that are mockingly following yeah. her, which are still giving her attention, even though they're doing it in kind of an ironic or like mocking sort of a way. And then there's the people that genuinely believe, you know, she's a girl boss. She's good deep down inside. And yeah, she got caught up in some stuff and was manipulated. And, and I don't believe right. that. Like, I think she knew. I don't believe she was manipulated. Like, they haven't, like, nobody has said anything wrong in their, like, either ironic or unironic fan-based statements about her. But, like, right. yeah, she's a rule breaker, but, like, there's rules and then there's laws. And, like, had she not been yeah. caught and had this not come to light, like, here. there could have been real damage done to people's health. And, like, yeah. that's the thing. And I think oh, yeah. it's because she was caught so early that, like... It just kind of became like, oh, haha, it wasn't really that big of a deal. But, like, there could have been very real consequences to what she did. So, like, yeah. I... And our healthcare system is already inundated with, like, yeah. a lot of problems and financial issues. And that just would yeah. have devastated it, I think, if that had been able allowed to go to market and not caught. But I think it would have been caught eventually anyway. But there are a lot of people that could have been damaged right. very badly. A lot of individual people outside of the companies. And yeah, the absolutely. Like so. people that w- have relied on this for diagnostic testing because they didn't have health insurance. Yeah. Like they could have gone really, really yeah. wrong for a lot of people. And like, it's just not something to like, that's not something to celebrate. Like that's something to Take keep in lightly. mind. Yeah, she she probably is a genius. And yeah, she probably is very, yeah. um very good at coming up with these ideas but then she used it like she she got into something that she couldn't get out of yeah i mean i think she has a lot of really interesting um skills and talents as a person and as a business person of a female business person and that i respect about her but at the same time like you have to temper that with morality you have Mm -hmm. to temper that with ethics and these are things that she did not do. And to me, that signifies that she's not a well-balanced person and she's not someone that should be in yeah. the business world ever again. Who knows what's going to happen to her? Like, she, you know, she could get up to 20 years in prison or what are, did I say? I think she years? faced, yeah, I think it's 20. Yeah. So, like, that's um, very real, interesting stuff going on. <laughs> I mean, had she, like, had A, had this technology been available, B, had she come up with some other kind of really like valuable business model, yeah, these would all be good things to celebrate. Yeah, but she's just so and female her, criminal. You know, mannerisms and so. look and all that were copied from other people. So like, I just don't see like, hey, let's celebrate this person yeah. for having this unique thing that's not really unique. Mm-mm. Yeah, she wasn't an original story. But I, I wanted to chat about that briefly, just given the fact that it's been so much in the news lately. Yeah, but I've got an interesting story for today's main case. Um, I've got, <laughs> you're gonna love both of the stories I have planned for this week, but this one is the story of Giselle Esteban okay. and Michelle Lay. 
Okay, so okay. you probably haven't heard of either one of these women, but this kind of story, I think, centers around um, cameras, video surveillance that is everywhere now, right? And we've had conversations mm. in other mm -hmm. podcasts about this phenomena. The fact that, like, you really can't go anywhere nowadays without being seen on some kind of camera, whether it's street right. traffic cameras, whether it's surveillance cameras at gas stations, banks, on street corners in the city. Like, you, there's not – people have security cameras. Like, in particular, we have, like, security mm -hmm. cameras in almost every window of our house. So, like, you can't go anywhere on our property without a security yeah. camera catching you and flagging something. And I think a lot yeah. of people have that now because they want the safety. And a lot of these companies, like Simply Safe and some of the other ones, mm -hmm. like, have made their, their company successful based upon security surveillance like this. But um, in this particular case, right. security cameras captured some really crazy footage. Um, this is happened most of the footage that was caught was at the kaiser permanente medical center in hayward california so this story focuses on the location in the bay area it's san francisco area may 27th 2011. okay, okay. and this particular right. facility had no less than 18 cameras so they're capturing everything. And this is a hospital, okay. right? So hospitals typically have a yeah. lot of cameras for a variety of reasons, including you yeah. know, making sure that the staff aren't taking medications against the, the regulations and you know, ensuring that people aren't sneaking into mm -hmm. the hospital to do damage to other patients. But this was actually both a hospital and mm -hmm. a facility that had nurses training at it. And Michelle Lay okay. was one of the students that was training at that particular location. Again, it's the Kaiser Permanente Medical Center. And it's a little before 7 p.m. when this young nursing student, Michelle, walks to her car from the training hospital that she's been getting her nursing certification from. Mm -hmm. And the cameras clearly show her leaving her post at the hospital and heading to her car. And mm -hmm. they don't really know why she left her post because you're not really supposed to do that. And initially, I think they kind of thought maybe she forgot something in her car and went out there to grab it. Um, but she wasn't supposed to be there, and she didn't have authorization to leave her post, but the camera showed her approach her white Honda CRV around 7.17 p.m., and then she gets in the car and leaves the garage. And she was not off work, like she was in the middle of a no, shift. No, she's in the middle of a shift, and it's a okay. training shift, and that's really important that you, like, there's no reason for her to be leaving. But the, the cameras clearly show a white CRV leaving the garage at around 7.17 p.m. Okay. And it's a few hours before the end of her shift and no reason for her to be leaving. But around 8.56 p.m., her supervising instructor notices that she's gone, which is kind of scary that it took that long yeah. for her supervising instructor yeah, to notice that she's not there. Yeah. And the instructor takes a security guard and asks the security guard to go with her to the garage to look for Michelle's car, which also interesting because... If, who knows what all their students and employees' cars look like. Right. So maybe she was just glancing around for Michelle, not necessarily for the car. But right. around 9.05 p.m., the white CRV re-enters the garage and drives to the third floor. Okay. Weirdly enough, this car, you can see on the footage that the car sees the instructor looking and waving and stops, then backs up and quickly leaves the garage again. What? Okay. So you'd think, okay, maybe Michelle was not supposed to be gone. For some reason, she left. She came back, was thinking she was going to sneak back in before the end right. of the shift. Saw the instructor, panicked, backed up, got the hell out of there. Okay. But the instructor was like, this is not right, and called the police, which, you know, kudos to her for realizing the situation was not normal. Uh-huh. Okay. So we flash forward to the morning, the next morning, and it's San Diego. 
Okay, we're, we're, we got a little San Diego connection here, which is another reason why I liked this story. 400 miles south of our mysterious scene from the previous day, Michelle's family, um, her former boyfriend sent a text to her family, in particular her cousin Christine, and says that Michelle's missing and asks if anyone has heard from her. Which Her former boyfriend. Yes, her former boyfriend. And the cousins that she's getting that are getting texts about this are kind of because it's a very very tight family. It's a Vietnamese family okay. um, that had come to this country maybe another, the previous generation before Michelle. Her parents uh-huh. were the ones because that was really a, a time in history where you know the Vietnam War happened uh-huh. and a lot of people were displaced and so a lot of Vietnamese immigrants came to the U.S. and made a new life and created you know new lives for their families here. And her family was one of those families. So she's this really big family that's located in the San Diego area. Mm-hmm. And I think they weren't too worried when they started getting texts about her because she's this 26-year-old kind of fun-loving person. She's responsible. She's you know outgoing. She mm-hmm. has a lot of fun. And so I don't think that they thought anything was out of the ordinary at the moment for okay. this, this young woman. And so they just kind of let it go. They didn't really you know start to investigate yet at that point. But mm-hmm. As I mentioned earlier, Michelle was part of a large Vietnamese family that was centered in the San Diego area. She actually grew up in Rancho Penasquitos. Oh, yeah. Which is, you know, an area that you and I know of because we lived in San Diego, which is not far from where I lived. And it was the next city over from where I lived for eight years. So Mm -hmm. I know the area well. Um, She had one sibling, Michelle did, and it was a brother named Michael. Michelle had graduated from Mount Carmel High School in 2002, and then she went on to San Francisco State University. And then she was completing a nursing program at Samuel Merritt University in Oakland, California, when she vanished. Okay. And that was in May 2011 that she disappeared. Michelle and Michael had both lost their mother to breast cancer a few years previously. Um, Michelle was about 14 and Michael was 11 when their mother died. Mm -hmm. And this was in 1999. And she had been a nurse as well. And it was just a really kind of sad and emotional um, time for these kids. And I don't know where the father was, but I kind of got the impression that he wasn't on the scene because okay. when the mother passed away, the two were raised with her cousin Christine's family. Okay. And Christine is the one that got the text from the ex-boyfriend saying that Michelle was missing. Okay. So Christine was a really kind of critical figure in this as well because she basically grew up with Michael and Michelle. Yeah. Um, her mother had also been a nurse and she'd been a very incredible woman, a great mother by all accounts. And so it was very difficult on the family when she passed away. And Michelle kind of took over the role as a mother figure for her little brother when their mother passed away. And so it was kind of strange, I think, for Michael when he couldn't get a hold of his sister. When he mm-hmm. found about, out about all this, he started calling Michelle's phone and sending messages and then sort of... Hey, he and Christine started basically creating this Facebook um, search for her, sending out messages, doing kind of the social media thing. Anybody seen her? Let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. Um, who was the last person to see her? That kind of thing. They really got involved very fast, like the whole family. Yeah. By about 9.30 a.m. on May 28th, police found Michelle's white CRV parked outside an apartment complex a few blocks from the hospital. Okay. The doors were locked and there was no signs of anything out of the ordinary at that point when they found that car. Hayward police discovered the car was locked and secured and nothing was out of place. So they didn't really, I think, think anything was, I don't think a missing persons report was initiated at that point Mm -hmm. because she's a grown woman. Mm -hmm. Her car doesn't look like there's, there's no blood or signs of anything going on that would indicate that there was some kind of a struggle or something bad happened. 
But in any case, Michelle's family in San Diego packs up and heads to, up north to look for Michelle. And they're like, they're spreading out and looking at all the places that she used to go to. Luckily, her brother is attending school nearby in Berkeley. And so he just scoots on over to the Bay mm -hmm. Area and the Hayward area and starts looking. They're passing out flyers and canvassing the spots where Michelle typically went. After hundreds of calls and texts for nearly 24 hours um, and then getting silence in return, Mel Michelle finally texted back around noon the following day. And everybody was like, oh, whew. but she claimed she wasn't missing. Their phone was acting weird and deleting messages and all kinds of other stuff, which occasionally happens with iPhones, right? And she reassured her friends and family, hey, I'm okay. It's not a big deal. Everyone shouldn't be concerned. I'm mm -hmm. fine. Blah, blah, blah. Right. And she's doing this all via text, which I think this is familiar to a lot of us. Yeah. And everyone is still worried because it seems very unlike her. And she's this normally, you know, funny, fun-loving, talkative family member. And now she just vanishes and claims that she needs time away from everything. It just seems really weird. Because mm -hmm. she's telling him, I'm fine. I just need some space. I need time away. I'm, I, everything's fine. I just had a very stressful couple of days and I just need time to myself. But after about three hours, the text stopped completely. And Michelle's family suspects that someone has taken Michelle and her phone. Mm. Um, they think that someone is pretending to be her with her phone. Yeah. So they get right to work and a large group of friends and family go straight to the police. They get this missing persons report filed. Um, the police text the phone as well, and detectives are basically saying, hey, you're reported as missing. This is very yeah. serious. You need to call us immediately. Yeah, we need to, like, hear your voice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, which I think, God, I can't remember which case we had, which is a similar thing, where they had taken her phone and were texting the people back, and everyone thought it was normal for a while yeah. until they realized, um, no, she's actually missing. Yeah. So... The detective texts Michelle's phone and she responds back with another text saying, I'm not missing. My phone's dying. I'm having car trouble. All these kind of vague responses that Michelle's family had gotten in a similar fashion. Mm -hmm. And the police are like, no, this is yeah. not okay. We're telling you as the authority figure in this case to call immediately and you're not calling. Yeah. Something's wrong. So they start investigating, leaving kind of no stone unturned at that point. Um, no one could think of any enemies that Michelle had or any reasons that someone would be upset with her except one person. And that's a woman named Giselle Esteban. Okay. So Giselle had been one of Michelle's best friends in San Diego during high school. They had been to school together and she'd been around Michelle's family a lot over the years. But after Michelle and Giselle graduated in 2002, the two moved to the Bay area for school. Giselle met someone, fell in love and had a baby and moved in with the baby daddy and then ended up breaking up a few years later. Okay. At the time all of this happened, Giselle was a few months pregnant. So Giselle and Michelle, well, no, excuse me, Michelle had maintained a friendship with the baby's father, a man named Scott, after Giselle broke up with this man. Okay. And ev evidently this really pissed Giselle off. She was yeah. not happy that her best friend was maintaining a relationship with her ex. Mm-hmm. So police question Giselle, and she claims she has no idea where Michelle is. She's just really kind of, I don't know how to describe her. She's just sort of mellow about the whole thing, but she kind of has a nonchalant attitude, like, well, I don't care about this person. We haven't talked in ages. We're not friends anymore. She did bad things to me. She screwed me over, and, and we haven't talked in years hmm. for that reason. But not, like, really angry about it. But 
she admits that she and Michelle had fallen out over this supposed affair. Because she thinks that Michelle had a relationship, an inappropriate relationship with Scott, her mm-hmm. baby's father. That they had, and that was the reason that they broke up because Michelle had been having some kind of a affair with Scott. Okay. Even so, though, she says, I haven't talked with this woman in so long. I have no idea where my former friend might be or where she may have disappeared to. The police also talked to Scott, and he also confirms his story and says he doesn't know anything. Okay. In the meantime, though, investigators found that there was this case of this woman named Fong Lei. Same last name as Michelle. Also a 20-something nursing student from the Bay Area, also Vietnamese. But and she had disappeared related. a little over a year before Michelle. And so police are thinking these two cases might be connected and there might be kind of a serial killer sort of a situation at work that's interested in these young, pretty Vietnamese, Vietnamese nursing students. But, but the so, women, as far as we know, are not related. No. They just have the same last they name. They have the okay. same last name, which the last name Lei, L-E, mm-hmm. is a pretty common last name yeah. for Vietnamese families. So it's just a coincidence that that okay. was actually... The same last name. And the investigators look into this pretty thoroughly and can't find any connections between these two missing students. It was April 2010 that a body was found in the woods that was determined to be Michelle Lay. Um, the killer has never been found. The body that was found in the woods was determined to be Fong Lay's body, and the killer was never found. Okay. Um, Michelle's family is concerned that she's been kidnapped. They don't think she's dead. They're convinced she's alive somewhere, being held against her will. Police don't think that, though. Mm -hmm. And they're keeping all the clues close to the vest, as they normally do. Because there's some very critical, I think, factors that they have information about that only they and the killer would know. Right. So spreading that around to the news media and other sources might cause that person to hide even more, keep yeah. even more secret, and then make it very harder, much harder to solve that particular crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, the family also feels that Michelle's case isn't, been, isn't being given priority because she's a woman of color. Mm. And they're pretty upset about that. Um, and also because she's an adult. They believe mm-hmm. that younger children, in particular white women, um, get more priority as far as missing cases and missing person cases are concerned. And that is true. I mean, yeah, we literally just saw that with Gabby Petito. Yeah, yeah. So I think that they had reason to be concerned, and they did the right things. Mm-hmm. On June 4th, they held a vigil, and they continued with every possible effort in their body to keep Michelle's story in the news because they wanted that coverage. They wanted people to be aware that this person is missing and to be on the lookout for her. Mm-hmm. And a week later, the police meet with the family after they'd had the chance to thoroughly examine Michelle's car. And the police indicate at that point they believe this is a homicide case and not a missing person's case. From information in the car? Yes. Um, but they also say they can't provide any further information. Hmm. But the family is like pissed they're like how are yeah. you going to change it from a homis- from a missing persons to a homicide and not tell us why right um and and that i think there were some cultural issues also going on within that because i think in some asian cultures particularly the vietnamese culture there is this respect thing with the elders mm-hmm. and you know they don't believe that you should question elders you should question authority those sorts of things and then the younger generation is like no 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 we need to get in their face and, and yeah and so there's kind of that conflict, I think, within her family that was like, okay, we have to listen to the authorities and let them do their job. But the younger generation was like, no, 
Yeah. She's not getting the coverage and the attention that she deserves. We have to push this forward on our own. If we don't, no one will. Right. And thank goodness that they did. Because I think in, a, in many cases, the fact that people are doing that and pushing forward despite reservations by other people that help find these young women and young missing people. Mm-hmm. But in any case, um, the family was discouraged and they don't believe the police. They don't believe it's a homicide. They believe that she's still alive. Okay. And they, they get their own private investigator involved. The family looks at human trafficking and other options with their private investigator, which I think is not unusual. I think sure. she's this pretty young woman. Um, and there's every reason to believe that that could potentially be an option because we've mm-hmm. had other cases like the Brittany Drexel case where that mm-hmm. was, at, in fact, at, in play. They believe someone had been waiting in the garage for Michelle. And that Michelle had left her belongings at the hospital, making it clear that she didn't intend to leave, that someone had forced her to leave, that that was not her driving the car out of the garage. It was someone else. And the camera footage doesn't really show that. It just shows the car. There's not really a clear image of who was driving it. Okay. They also believe that it had to have been multiple kidnappers because, and that they had to have not been strangers to Michelle because of the way everything went down. Um, witnesses also heard conversation around 4 a.m. in the area where Michelle's car was found. They'd seen the headlights on in the car and they'd heard multiple voices, which is another reason they believe that there were multiple people. But they think that in order to overpower her in that garage, that there had to have been multiple people working in conjunction to get her in that car without, without alerting anyone. Right. Well, it could be both, right? It could be one person that knew her or multiple people, A, that that didn't know her or didn't know her that physically forced her into the car, yes. right? Yes. And I think that's what the private investigator was kind of indicating that yeah. these are some options. These are what we believe is probably going on in this case. Yeah. So police start questioning everyone who knows Michelle. And while the private investigator explores other options, including a tip line, they, they get a lot of tips and they talk to the police and people, uh, I guess there was one prison informant that claimed they knew about the abduction and that police chased all these leads down and none of them were significant at that point. Mm-hmm. So the, pr- the family in the meantime is writing press releases, they're staying on social media and they're camped out in a hotel room in the Bay Area working on this case, like literally with laptops, getting everyone involved, mm-hmm. just canvassing every social media outlet that they have and just really keeping her in the news, posting her picture, posting her story, help us find her. She's alive. We just know it. But weeks are passing and the family is just not, they're not getting any details from the police or from anyone else that are viable. Hmm. So they pull in Amber Dubois' mom. She ran an organization called Team Amber in honor of her murdered daughter. And that's a case that I'm going to cover in a later story on the show. I find it an interesting case as well. But this particular young lady disappeared from Southern California um, on her way to school. And her mom was in Southern California as well. So the family, being in San Diego, pulled mm-hmm. her in and was like, hey, can you recommend someone that we can work with in the Bay Area to help us solve this case? Because yeah. she had experience in finding missing people. And she puts him in contact with Mark Class. Yes, she puts him in touch with Polly Class's father. Mm. And... He also works in helping families find missing mm-hmm. members. And his own daughter had been murdered in Petaluma area again. I'm mm-hmm. going to cover that case on a later episode because it's a very interesting case and it's critical in how rules and regulations and organizations yep. um, changed finding missing people. Yeah. So particularly young, young missing people. So Mark Class was um, 
in the Bay Area or closer to the Bay Area. Yeah. Petaluma, I think, is kind of in between Southern and Northern California. But Mark Class met with a family in Hayward and told them some very helpful tips on getting them some assistance to find their missing family member. Mm -hmm. And he helped them get search volunteers together. Um, His daughter, 12-year-old Polly Class of Petaluma, had been kidnapped from a slumber party. Um, Her killer had been discovered when he'd been pulled over at a traffic stop and captured. The Polly, or excuse me, the Class Kids Foundation was created to help provide families with proven methodical methods to find missing family members. Mm -hmm. And he starts incorporating some of these proven methods and assisting this family by providing those methods to them to help find this missing woman. Yeah. And the Lee family gets organized with Mark Class's help. And they, he tells them they need to start looking at a half mile radius from where Michelle went missing and then widen that to an area with a five mile radius and kind of do it in a very methodical way mm-hmm. where they're marking down the areas that they're searching. Because mm-hmm. when he gets in, before he got involved, they were just kind of doing things willy nilly and everybody was just kind of on their own and yeah. nothing was really organized and they were searching areas and how do they know that someone isn't searching the exact same area yeah. a week later, so, so on and so forth. So Mark Class also suggests that they get friendlier with the police because at that point there was kind of this hostile relationship because they believed the police were lying, the police mm-hmm. weren't prioritizing their case, etc. But he tells them, hey, you need to get tight with the police so that you can get the tips from them. And they determined where Michelle's cell phone had been because it had pinged off towers. Okay. Right, And that's a critical clue for them. And the police yeah. provide that to them to help them with their search efforts. And as it turns out, on the night of her disappearance, Michelle's phone traveled quite a distance and then came back to the hospital parking lot and out again. So they're like, they, they have the camera footage, they mm-hmm. have the cell phone tower foot, uh, information, and that's really helping them narrow down the area where they should be searching for Michelle. So when the car came back into the parking deck, like the, her phone was in the car basically? Yes. Okay. Yes. Based on the pings from the cell tower... They determined that there was a canyon, kind of a remote canyon that the, the phone had gone to. And they're like, hey, we need to go out and check this canyon out. It's kind of rugged mm-hmm. and it's a little bit out of the way. Um, and the police suggest this zone needs to be searched. And it's a narrow canyon east of okay. the San Francisco Bay Area up in the hills. But that's where the phone had pinged near. So unfortunately, this particular area is kind of notorious for homeless oh, people and for dumping bodies after murders. Yeah, just awful. Um, the family searches the canyon area, and it's, again, a pretty scary place with lots of kind of homeless encampments, and bodies have been found there before, so there's mm-hmm. reason to believe that they might find something there now, given the fact that that phone had pinged off that tower. And they find some promising clues at first, mm. um, including a human thigh bone. Right. I mean, promising, but sad at the same time, because someone clearly passed away there, and at first, they think it, maybe it's an animal bone. It's near a small creek. Mm-hmm. But the bone was a little bit too clean and too large. So it had been there for right. a long time before Michelle had gone missing. And um, it had belonged to someone yeah. they estimated to be about six feet tall. So yeah. it couldn't have been Michelle. She was only about 5'5". Five, five, and more feminine, so it had to have been smaller if it was hers. Yeah, and the femur is the longest bone in the body. So, like, if it was an intact femur, like, not frac- like not broken anywhere like that's going to be a big old bone for somebody that was six feet tall yeah yeah um because i think at first they thought it was like a cow bone or something because it was so big yeah um and it's a very large bone just i think people are 
I think people are a little surprised when they actually see them because yeah. they don't believe that we have bones that big in our, our human bodies. Yep. But yeah, it was a human bone. But nothing panned out on that, even though they found some clothes and some shoes and various items up in this canyon. But again, it's a homeless encampment. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you're going to find those sorts of things. Um, eight searches in total were conducted around that area um, and sort of centering around towers where Michelle's phone had pinged, right? Mm-hmm. They find additional clothing, but none of it's related. None of it has Michelle's DNA or anything that would lead them to believe it was Michelle's. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly given the fact that they know what she was wearing because they saw her leaving the garage yeah. through the camera. So it's none of the stuff she was wearing. Um, in the meantime, though, police are investigating and chasing down leads and determine that they have a very viable murder suspect. Bum, bum, bum. Okay. They checked security cameras again. And sort of went over them with a fine-tooth comb. Mm-hmm. And that is very laborious yeah. um, work if you know how that goes. But you really have to have a lot of people involved. And because there were 18 different cameras, yeah. and they probably narrowed it down to like 24 hours within the time that she was spotted on the camera. And they're looking through the, that footage from a few days back to see if there's anything suspicious mm-hmm. on that that would indicate, you know, something bad happened. And they go to speak to Giselle Esteban again. And she starts expressing some animosity about Michelle. And they, you know, they're questioning her again and she's getting kind of mad. And she announces that she had, was pissed at Michelle because Scott had cheated with this woman. And she admits that she'd gone to Kaiser Permanente for a prenatal checkup before Michelle disappeared. Okay. And admitted she'd seen Michelle because this was her training hospital. Mm-hmm. So I think they both lived in the Bay Area. It was not, you know, kind of that strange that they would run into one another. I don't know that she knew that that particular hospital was Michelle's training hospital. She had gone in for her prenatal checkup there and, and accidentally ran into this okay. friend of hers, old friend of hers. Um, she also indicated that, yeah, there's bad blood between us. Um, but then they look at her and they see she's this small and pregnant woman, right? She's real, she's smaller than Michelle. She's only like five two. Yeah. And Michelle is five five, and she's pregnant. So like, how is she gonna overpower this woman in a parking lot? Throw her in a car? Yeah. Or, you know that kind of thing. They're looking at it and they're like, no, that just couldn't be. This just doesn't make any sense. Um, Giselle went home and police looked at Michelle's car again and found blood inside. Uh-huh. They also found blood at the hospital garage. And they determined that it was Michelle's blood. Okay. And they determined she'd been attacked in the garage and placed in the backseat of her own vehicle. So basically, this indicated a really, a really violent confrontation because of the amount of blood that they were finding in different spots. Police go back to the security cameras again, and they broaden their search even further, and they find an ID card from Michelle's nursing school in her car. And it's not Michelle's. Okay. And it's wedged in the seat. And they're like, what is going on here? Clearly someone did not intend for this to be here. They look at the card to try to find out who it belongs to. And they determine that it was a new instructor that had been slated to start the week after Michelle had been disappeared or after Michelle had disappeared. Okay. They also determined the card had been stolen. So they're like, did Michelle steal the card? What? How did yeah. this instructor's card get in Michelle's car? And they watch hours and hours of surveillance to pinpoint who stole this card. And guess who it was? The friend? Yeah. She'd taken the card. And she'd used it the day before Michelle disappeared. 
And the camera footage showed her enter, walk around in a lab coat at Michelle's nursing school. She started in the morning. She's kind of wandering around in this lab coat. And then she came back after the school had closed. And she turned on computer monitors okay. and she stole a class roster with names and pictures. Ew. So I don't know. Evidently now nursing schools and other schools have class rosters with pictures and stuff on them. That seems super creepy. Yeah. Well, it's like your student ID. Right. But that seems creepy that something like that would be out, like available, you know, with information, student information like that. Yeah, well, I mean, usually, like, the instru- it's the instructor's, like, responsibility to make sure that that's not available to be accessed. But, yeah, I mean, if you have it printed out, yeah, anybody could take it. But that's why everything is mostly online yeah. now. Well, in any case, she the, she found this roster, and they see her there. She's there for less than two hours before she leaves. Excuse me. Then other security cameras catch her at an Apple store, and they also see that her phone, you know, they're, they're following Michelle's phone. And she goes into this uh-huh. Apple store and has Michelle's phone unlocked, pretending that it's her phone and that her daughter had accidentally locked it. Oh, there should be, like, second security options for that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, well, they didn't. They just unlocked it for her. And mm. as soon as they unlocked that phone, like, a whole bunch of, like, pings, and, and it's pinging off towers, and it's giving signals and yeah. showing that Michelle is moving with, or, excuse me, it's showing that Giselle is moving with Michelle's phone. And cameras are showing Giselle texting on that phone. So she's the one that had been texting the police, that had been texting the family members with Michelle's phone. So bits of evidence are starting to pile up at this point. And the police tracked Giselle and saw her circle the block during Michelle's vigil. They saw her at various areas indicating that she knew what was going on in this case and was just being super shady. And they searched her hmm. baby's father, Scott. They searched, like, his apartment. Mm-hmm. They searched his car. And they spoke with him again. They suspected that Giselle had help because she couldn't possibly have done all of this on her own. She's this tiny woman and yeah. she's preggers, right? But not long after, Scott called the police and claimed to have Michelle's phone, that he found it in the backseat of his car. Um, okay. Like, so okay. they're like, eh, I don't think so. Like, really? Like, you just yeah. suddenly find Michelle's phone in the backseat of your car when you're a, a possible suspect in this case. We don't think yeah. so. Um, but then uh, they start to get information from Scott, leading them to believe that they're not sure whether he's the possible next victim of whoever killed Michelle or if he's involved with this. Whoa. And as it turns out, Giselle had snuck into Scott's house. She'd verbally threatened him. He'd actually recorded multiple conversations between them, and he provided this information to the police. In these conversations, she's talking to Scott about Michelle, and she yells at him about Michelle and threatens his life during these conversations, both his life and Michelle's life. Uh, so suddenly Giselle is not looking too innocent. Let me play the, um, the conversation for you. It's wild. You, you hear it, and right. you're like, number one, how in the hell did he get this recorded? And number two, like, who talks like this? I asked you, can we just be honest about Michelle? Because she's the one issue that I really, really am having a hard time dealing with. That's not what you said at all. Yes. Okay, well then fine. Starting from now, we are going to be honest about Michelle. Do you understand me? Whether you sleep with her, whether you share food with her, whether you talk to her, you will be honest with me. Look at me. 
you will be honest with me regarding her. Otherwise, I will take your life and hers. And you can take that to the grave with you. Why? Why? Because you lied about her so many times, it's hard to believe that you didn't sleep with her and lock her up. You deserve to die for your lies, as does she. And you will. If you do it again, this is your last and final. Why? Do you understand me? It's your last and final one. Okay, so... Did you hear that? Okay, number one, it sounds kind of fake to me. Like, doesn't it sound like she's reading a script? Why did she, like, switch the way she talks? <laughs> like, Yeah. It's like, did she write it down and practice it first? <laughs> it's kind of yeah, it, like. it sounds like written dialogue. And then the second thing is, like, she had a little girl in the car, her baby. In yeah, the car it's like with she her. like wanted to sound extra dramatic. I mean, this whole thing, as she's yelling at this guy, in front of her child, like, wow, it's a doozy, definitely a doozy. Um, but that just really puts her at the top of the suspect list. Wow. Anyway, so Giselle doesn't look so innocent, and it's obvious that she had become fixated with Michelle, believing that Michelle had broken up her relationship with Scott. Uh, no. There's no evidence that this is true, um, but Giselle had clearly become obsessed. Like Scott, both Scott and everybody else that knew these two said there's no reason to believe, and mm -hmm. Michelle had a boyfriend. Like there's no reason to believe yeah. that she would have done anything with Scott. But for some reason, Giselle believed that she had. And that the whole reason that they had continued to communicate after Giselle yeah. broke up with Scott was that Michelle was doing something inappropriate with him. Hmm. So Scott turns over every, every text and email that he has from Giselle, and it reveals this crazy obsession that she hmm. has and this hatred and these threats and emails and phone calls. And she wished that Michelle and Scott would die. And Michelle believed that everything, um, with everything in her that Michelle had broken, excuse me, Giselle believed that Michelle had broken up her relationship, and that much is pretty obvious. Even so, though, there's no body, there's no proof that Michelle was actually dead, despite the fact that there was blood on the scene. Yeah. And then a tip comes in from a priest who had seen Giselle come in and make a confession for something bad she was about to do before Michelle disappeared. Now, the reason that this information could be passed forward was that she had run into this oh. priest at this outdoor patio area and not a confessional. This is a reason that he could tell. Because he kept saying, well, do you want to go into the confessional? Do you want to go back to the church and tell me this in a confessional? And she was like, no, no, no. Had she gone okay. into the confessional, that would have been privileged yeah. information. Because the priest um, slash parishioner relationship is almost like an attorney-client privilege. And they are not compelled. Okay, I was going to ask, like, if they have legal... Because I know, like, you always hear that, like, the clergy, like, they can't tell your secrets. But, like, is there legal protection They are not compelled to give that information up. But okay. because she was not in a confessional, she was out yeah. in a public place telling him this information, he was able to give that info to the police. In the meantime, though, police are searching high and low and identifying... They found Giselle's hair in Michelle's vehicle. Oh, my god! And gosh. also her DNA on, like, turn signals and things like that. There's no mm. reason yeah. that should have been in Michelle's car. Not if they're not, not friends anymore. Yeah. And they also saw that Giselle's phone had been traveling with Michelle's. Mm -hmm. Just like the Kelsey Barreth thing, mm -hmm. right? Remember that's how they, they kind of tracked him down and found his yep. phone traveling with her phone when it shouldn't have been? Um, lab results come back from the shoes that were taken from Giselle's apartment and they have Michelle's blood on them. They're positive <sighs> for Michelle's blood. So 
This case is starting to tighten in on Giselle, and the police arrest her for Michelle's murder. And she's currently pregnant when they arrested yeah. her. Yeah. I think she was like four or five months pregnant by the time they arrested her. Okay. And she shows absolutely zero guilt, zero remorse, just kind of calm acceptance when they pull her in. The family's shocked, though, because, you know, they'd known Giselle. Yeah. She was Michelle's friend. Like, how the heck could this have happened? And Michelle's last words to Giselle had actually been, no matter what, you will always be my friend. Ugh. That was the last text that she'd sent to Giselle, <sighs> this woman who murdered her callously and in cold blood. Um, and yet still there was no body. Um, the family had hope that Michelle was still alive, though. Like, they were like, okay, maybe she's just hidden somewhere. Maybe she's still alive. Mm-hmm. Until we see that body, mm-hmm. she's still alive to us. But September 17, 2011, one last search is conducted with a specially trained sniffer dog. It's this Amber Dubois' mom. Okay. And her name is Carrie McGonigal. And she had been training this sniffer dog because yeah. that's the sort of stuff she works on now after wow. her daughter's death um, to help other mm-hmm. people, which is absolutely amazing because I think it would be so easy in a circumstance like that to just shut oh, down 100%. and to give up on everything. And she really just was determined to help other yeah. people so that they didn't have to go through what she had to go through. But this sniffer dog that she was working with, she's, they're out doing this search around the area that the police had told them to go to. And the dog leads the teams to some twine and then their bones next to it, <sighs> skeletal remains. And they found Michelle in a shallow grave. Uh, dental records confirmed this. And so four months of searching was over at that point. <sighs> yeah. So it took them four, four months to find this poor young woman. Um, the trial for Giselle Esteban began October 20, excuse me, October 2012. She claimed that she did it, but it was in the heat of passion because of Scott. So she's not even right? trying to claim self-defense. That, no, hmm. no. She's basically saying that this just was, I was so passionate about this that I killed her in a fit of rage. Right. And so... This couldn't have been premeditated murder, which was what she was charged with. She was charged with premeditated first-degree murder. And they believe she methodically followed Michelle and planned everything out. Yeah. Um, just, she believed that Michelle had stole her happiness and family and broken up her family. And Ugh. that this had created this fit of rage in her that caused her to kill Michelle. The one little detail, though, that was missing was the cause of death because the body was too decomposed to determine what had actually happened. Mm-hmm. Prosecutors believe that Michelle was attacked from behind with some sort of a knife or sharp object, which had incapacitated her. Mm-hmm. They still don't quite know like how it all went down and how Giselle was able to get her into the back of the vehicle, mm-hmm. which I think maybe she had had some kind of a weapon and had convinced Michelle to get in the back and killed her in the car. I don't know. Um, they they yeah. still to this day don't really know. And she, I don't think, is being very forthcoming um, Giselle, that is, mm-hmm. with what happened. But the jury found her guilty. Um, she did get 25 years to life with the possibility of parole, I think because that crime of passion sort of a thing was considered. Mm-hmm. Um, but she really was showing no remorse. And the judge indicated that, you know, it's pretty clear in this case, if you do not show remorse, you will not get parole. Right. And he wrote that in his decision as well, because he indicated he oh, saw yeah. she was showing no remorse, no sadness, no nothing for what she'd done. Yeah. Um, Michelle's family, though, continued to help Mark Kloss, Mark Class, um, in honor of Michelle. So the kids yeah. in particular um. have continued to help him in these searches for other missing young people. And Giselle gave birth to her second daughter in prison, which was given to the fathers 
family to raise, but just a really, wow. really sad case. And to me, like, number one, it was interesting because it had that San Diego connection. It was the Bay mm-hmm. Area as well. I lived in the Bay Area for a while as well. Um, and then it just is interesting because you don't hear a ton of stories about Asian murders. I don't yeah. know if that's because they happen less often or because there is that media bias. But And then yeah. also having such a tiny, small woman who was the best friend of this other woman kill her. It just seemed bonkers mm-hmm. to me that she was able to plan that out and actually do it and not be found for so long. But you look at this picture of her and she just doesn't look like she has it in her. I mean, and granted, you know, doing these sorts of shows that we've done, you realize that anyone could be a cold-blooded killer now. But it's just, you see her size and her stature and, you know, the background of this and it's her best friend. And you just don't think someone could ever do something like this until you find out that they did. Yeah. So, it's interesting. Mm. Good case. That's horrible. All right, anything else you wanna add before we wrap this episode up for the day? I don't think so. Um, If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. We definitely like to hear um, comments, observations, questions, um, tell us information you might potentially have that we don't have. We'd be more than happy to give you a shout out on the show too. Um, social media. Yeah, we're, um, at the BFD podcast on Instagram. So we post pictures and, and, um, sources and all of that good stuff there too. So you can find us and, and follow us and like us and stuff like that there. Yeah, and I would ask that you please rate, review, and subscribe. It definitely helps other listeners find out little details about the podcast that they may be interested in and pops us up higher on searches that people may have for certain types of cases. In any case, please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.